Frédéric Chopin's heroic Polonaise in A-flat major, Opus 53, as performed there live by Marta Argerich on February 22, 1965, during the first round of the 7th International Chopin Piano Competition in Warsaw. A very warm welcome from me, Adrian Fuchs, to this edition of On and Off the Record, the second installment in a two-part special series celebrating the lioness of the keyboard, pianist Marta Argerich. In this episode, we take a closer look at Argerich's relationships with conductor Charles Dutois and pianist Stephen Kovacevich, discuss her phenomenal technique, and look at the insecurities and fears that have plagued her career. We also touch on Argerich's brave struggle with cancer, her triumphant, now legendary concert at Carnegie Hall in 2000, and discuss some of the qualities that have made her a living legend. If you missed the first episode in the series, I encourage you to visit my website on and off the record, www.onandofftherecord.com, or go to iTunes, where you'll find that episode, as well as many of my other programs for listening and free download. You can also subscribe to my On and Off the Record podcast feed on iTunes, and in that way receive each new podcast downloaded to your mobile device or tablet as soon as it becomes available. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can do so by sending me a message via email. My email address is adrian, A-D-R-I-A-A-N, at onandofftherecord.com, via the On and Off the Record Facebook page, or via Twitter. My Twitter handle is at onoffthericord. But for now, sit back, pour yourself a glass of wine, or make yourself a cup of tea, and join me as we continue our exploration of the career and artistry of Marta Argerich. In the years following her triumph at the 1965 International Chopin Piano Competition, the whirlwind from Argentina soon became known as a pianist who never played it safe. Each musical outing became for Argerich a new high-risk adventure, another opportunity to discover interpretive possibilities in the moment, noted Kayla Bach. While this profound need to constantly test limits and resist predictability always charged her performances with great vitality, her restless, impulsive nature was not always conducive to stability in her private life. In 1969, Argerich married Swiss conductor Charles Dutois, with whom she would go on to have a daughter, Anne Catherine, or Annie, as she is more familiarly known, today an art historian. Though their marriage lasted only four years, Argerich and Dutois remained good friends and frequent collaborators on stage and in the recording studio. For my parents, Annie Dutois wrote in 2001, playing together means much more than being on stage, for they share far more than a daughter. They share 40 years of friendship and musical partnership. They met in the early 50s in Geneva, where my father had just received his diploma as conductor and my mother was enjoying the success of her second international competition. The first time they set eyes on each other, he made her laugh all night. He was apparently a tireless clown. As their friendship grew, he asked her if she would be the soloist at his first professional engagement. For that, my mother learned Ravel's piano concerto in G major, and she was learning it until the last minute. The night prior to the concert, my father took her on a scooter to Lausanne, where his parents lived. 
the concert was to be broadcast. They had dinner and my mother, pretending to be tired, left the table and went to her bedroom. She later explained the reason for her abrupt departure. Knowing that my father was particularly nervous at his professional debut, she tried to conceal the fact that she had not yet studied the second movement. So she locked herself up in her room, spent the night studying it and playing it on a virtual piano. Yeah. So, uh, uh, what's your feeling about this Ravel that has followed you for so long I time? I don't know, I don't know. You, you never grow tired you? of it? Yeah, sometimes, and sometimes it comes back to life. Yeah. And sometimes I play it not so well, and sometimes I look for things, and I play it better then. And then, you know, it depends on many things. This year I've played it a lot yeah. in different places. But not this last month, because this last month I was doing all kinds of other things. And I was doing the Schumann concerto, and I was doing two piano things, and just now. So I feel a little bit... You this work, is my last concert. Yeah. Do you work too much? Lately, yes, too much. Yeah. It's no fun. It's not fun? No. In the Ravel you have the slow movement that I know many, many people think it's the most beautiful music in the whole world. Mm -hmm. it's, isn't it so beautiful? People like it very much. Yes. It's a sort of a nostalgic and uh, <coughs> sort of melancholy kind of thing. I'm a little, but it's a little bit distant also. It's not very emotional. So people you know what I mean? It's sort of, yeah. yeah. What's it yeah. feels like to play it? I don't know. You feel nostalgic when you do it, or you? It depends. Mm. Mm. <laughs> no, when I, if I hear it, yes. I don't know. When I play it, there are many different thoughts, and always different ones coming to the mind. Mm. It's not a fixed image. No. It depends of many things, you know.
And that was the second movement of the Ravel Piano Concerto in G Major, as performed by Marta Argerich and Claudio Abado with the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra in that 1967 recording. Loneliness, it seems, haunted Argerich on stage as well as off. Marta has a towering personality, a friend told People magazine in 1980. She is quixotic and questing. It must be very difficult to live with her. Ivan Hewitt pointed out in the Telegraph that the burden of Argerich's tremendous gift is something that weighs heavily on her. She's totally at the service of her gift, but so is everyone around her. As a result, she herself appears completely selfish. Everyone has to dance attendance on her moods. In Bloody Daughter, Stephanie Argerich's recent film about her relationship with her mother, Stephanie Argerich says at one point, When I was younger, I was always the baby. Now I feel my mother is my baby. There is also, as Hewitt points out, a human cost to Argerich's genius, a trail of broken marriages, broken hearts, and children raised in single-parent households. Each of Argerich's three daughters were fathered by someone else. Alex Ross noted that musicians have a history of falling in love with Argerich and coming away crushed, not only by the force of her personality, but by the constant realization of their own inferiority. It is said that one of her partners would labor for hours over a difficult score, only to watch Argerich, a person of nocturnal habits, slouch downstairs in the middle of the afternoon, rub her eyes and sight-read the music effortlessly. The third major and perhaps most significant relationship of Argerich's life has been with the American concert pianist and conductor Stephen Kovacevic, with whom she has a daughter, Stephanie Argerich. We were twice about to marry but never did, Argerich once stated. I've not been lucky in these matters. I don't have a very mature attitude about marriage. It never was a great goal or conviction of mine. As her fellow Argentinian, the pianist Alberto Portuguese puts it, Marta is really only married to the piano. That has been the problem for all her lovers. My mother always told me that my father was the love of her life, Stephanie Argerich remarks in Bloody Daughter, and that she fell for him when she heard him play Beethoven's Fourth Piano Concerto. We met at a pianist's house, but things didn't become romantic for a while, noted Kovacevic in an interview with Ivan Hewitt for The Telegraph in 2015. When they did, it was a very combustible relationship. We had round one and round two, with a gap of six or seven years between. We never thought to get married. We were too busy quarreling. I must say, though, that we get on very well now. I think Argerich is warmer now than she was. You know, it's amazing that when it comes to playing piano duets, we're so compatible, because our playing temperaments are so different. Here is the first movement, Avec Importement, from Debussy's En Blanc et Noir, played by Marta Argerich and Stephen Kovacevic, and recorded in 1977.
Marta has one of the most astounding techniques that I've ever heard, and that includes Vladimir Horovitz. Note that the well-known pianist, conductor, and composer Andre Previn. She has a total grasp of what she's playing, and she's phenomenally exciting to hear. Indeed, listening to Argerich play is like sticking one's finger into an electrical outlet. Her legendary technique, the seeming effortlessness and freedom with which she plays, and the mercurial, almost but not quite out of control quality of her playing, are some of the most oft-mentioned elements of her artistic persona. On a physical level, what is difficult to believe is the sheer volume of sound that Argerich is able to command from the keyboard. Despite the fact that she is barely five foot four inches tall and with surprisingly small yet muscular hands, but Argerich's gift is not merely her fabulous technique, her fingers of steel, or her power behind the keyboard. It is a musical gift too. She is an unaffected interpreter whose native language is music, noted Alex Ross in the New Yorker. It is this quality that sets her apart. A lot of pianists play huge double octaves. A lot of pianists photograph well, but few have the unerring naturalness of phrasing that allows them to embody the music rather than interpret it. David Groves, a producer at EMI, recalls the way Argerich approached their first collaboration. She hovered around the piano, touching it like a cat, as though it was something to be sensed and tamed. And she was genuinely anxious about a Schumann miniature she had not played before. Not whether she could play it, but whether she could speak through it. The result was one of the best recordings I've ever had the privilege to make. Other oft-mentioned aspects of Argerich's artistry is the lightness of her playing and the way in which she seems to stretch time. Few pianists play with such a firm propulsiveness of rhythm. Which is something particular and rather unique to Argerich's playing, believes Richard Dyer. Bella Hartmann, in a 2009 article for Piano Magazine, noted that Argerich largely avoids points of gravity in her playing. Whilst she is always happy to give strong impulses, crashing bass notes, etc., much of her playing is light in the extreme, avoiding downbeats, making one phrase lead into the next, flying forwards in long swoops. Weakening emphasis and generating momentum. In trying to understand Argerich the artist, one has to realize that so much of her musicianship, her artistry, comes from a very instinctive place. Justin Davidson summed it up well when he wrote in Newsday, "Argerich's playing seems to well up from some bubbling, liquid core of musicality and fear, much like a Maria Callas. She excites us by daring to push boundaries, to be different." To create in the moment, and it is exactly this spontaneity, this risk-taking, that makes her playing so exciting. I always doubt Argerich mentions in the documentary film Evening Talks. I'm always groping. If you're too pleased with what you've done, or you get into a routine, that's the worst. Sometimes I go out on a limb just so it doesn't happen. For Argerich, that limb is usually speed. Dubbed the whirlwind from Argentina, she is famous for her ability to rip through the most challenging and treacherous works in the repertoire at such ferocious speeds that it leaves fellow pianists in dumbfounded awe and the audience at the edge of their seats. Slava Rostropovich, the great cellist and conductor, called Argerich 
a pianist with no limits at all, none whatsoever. One of my favorite Argerich recordings, and I know for many other people as well, is an electrifying live performance of Rachmaninoff's third piano concerto recorded in 1982 with Ricardo Chayi leading the Berlin Radio Symphony Orchestra. Argerich said that she will probably never record the Rachmaninoff again because she could never surpass this breathtaking performance. Philip Kennicott in his review for Gramophone magazine wrote that this remains a peculiarly heart-wrenching performance filled with the pianist's mercurial way with tempos, redolent with a tragedy made all the more poignant by her eerie and almost resigned sense of composure. It is exhilarating, yet profoundly sad, with the aura of a valedictory reading which, thankfully, it is not. The sparks with Chahi are extraordinary. Argerich takes enormous risks all the way through this performance, but never more so than in the finale, which she devours at a tempo that'll make your hair stand on end. Here, then, is the very end of the second movement leading into the third movement of Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 3, Opus 30, with Marta Argerich and the Berlin Radio Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Ricardo Chayi in this live recording from 1982.
In her 1978 interview with Dean Elder, Argerich stated that interpretation is trying to liberate what one is unconscious about. When one can let go, some things one doesn't know are there. The unexpected things and the surprises in the performance, that's when it's worthwhile. This is also what I appreciate in other performers. When they are masters of their means of expression, this does not exactly interest me. That interests me in a teacher. But in a performer, I am interested in what happens behind or in spite of the things the performer consciously wants to do. Maybe I am a little bit of a voyeur in that way, but this is what I love. Although Argerich gives the impression of being the kind of artist who can miraculously switch on the music at will without practicing, colleagues have mentioned that this is not true. There are legends, some she cultivated herself in earlier years, that she rarely practices and somehow deploys her consummate virtuosity without effort, noted Zolt Bonyar. Instead, I found that she is a relentless musical laborer, practicing 8, 9, 10 or 11 hours or more each day, truly working tirelessly for results. It has also been reported that Argerich, who is a night owl, does her practicing at night, sometimes throughout the night, while everyone else is sleeping. Talking about getting older, what about practicing? Yeah, you have to practice always. Yes. yes. As an instrumentalist. Yes, yes. Do you like practicing? No. No. I don't like the thought of it, but once I am doing it, I like it. It's interesting. The thought of, no, because you say, oh, I have to practice. This is very heavy, you know. But then when, once you start, you see. Mm. But, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I can be obsessive when there is music to be learned, Argerich has stated in an interview. But at other times, I don't touch the piano at all. I do a lot of things at the last minute, and then I'm in a panic. I don't prepare anything in an organized way. I'm not like that. I don't like to plan. Planning makes me unhappy, she once noted. What is Argerich like to perform with? For me, Marta is like life itself. It's not easy. It can be very unpredictable. It can be a pain in the neck. But it's the most beautiful and wonderful thing that there is, noted cellist Misha Maisky. She's very human and suffers from insecurities, but she is the most gifted, charming and incredible person and musician that I have ever had the pleasure and privilege to play music with. According to conductor Antonio Papano, performing with Argerich is like being in the presence of a fireball. Her pianism is not pianism in the normal sense of the word. It's volatile, Quixotic, rhapsodic, it's Marta herself. Of all the piano concertos that Marta Argerich has performed and recorded over the years, she is probably most linked, with the possible exception of Prokofiev's third, with Tchaikovsky's beloved piano concerto number no. one in B flat minor, opus 23, a work that she miraculously learned over the course of three short weeks prior to her first performance of this concerto. Here is Argerich in an interview with Sir Charles Groves discussing the Tchaikovsky First Piano Concerto. Now, you started playing the piano very early in your life, but the <laughs> first performance of this concerto was not so long ago, wasn't it? I think it was in Liverpool. Yes, six years ago. Six years ago. It wasn't I think with me, six or No, it was with yeah. uh, Mr. Schwab. That's it. Yes, I remember that. Yeah. 
And didn't you have to, to learn it very quickly for that performance? Yes, there was something like that. I didn't have to. It's my fault because I always listen to the last moment, you know. It's because yes. I had a lot of other things to do as well, I suppose. And I don't know. You know how it happens. I'm not very well organized as well. Mm. And I had learned it in three weeks, in the middle of other things as well. Perhaps people don't realize what learning that concerto in three weeks means. That must have been very hard. Yes, and I was terrified, I tell you. And then, because not only because of that, as well, two days later I had to play uh, another concerto for the second time. The concerto that I didn't really master in London, you know? Mm. At the same time. I mean, it was really something... And I remember uh, we came with a car with uh, Charles my ex-husband, mm. and he had a very nice car which went very fast and so I was supposed to come here at 2 o'clock for the rehearsal, and, but I think we are, I was making everything possible not to arrive on yes. time, you know, so yes. I wanted to stop, then I wanted to eat, then I wanted to drink something, and I wanted to, and I didn't want him to arrive, you see, yeah. and we had a police coming, because then he started rushing, because it was very late, and he thought, he wanted me absolutely to do it, you know, yeah. and then, and uh, and so then the police came. Uh, we were too fast, and I mean it was something incredible. All Finally, this before we your first rehearsal of the Chinese. Yes, game, the yeah. first and only one. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Yeah. You know, I had yeah. never heard it uh, from this place. You know, yeah. I was trying, yeah. And then, so, okay, I rehearsed. No one was sympathetic. First of all, because it is very funny to say that you play the Tchaikovsky concerto for the first time. First of all, no one really believes you. Yeah, because yeah. it's something that everybody thinks you should have played all your life. Yes. Because it's yeah. such a popular concert as everybody thinks, you know, but there is always the first time. Mm -hmm. That must be the first time for people to hear it too. That must be exciting, isn't it? Yes. Go on, I interrupted you. What about, what about the continuation of that saga? So then I arrived, yes, very late, and everybody was like that, and I just even didn't dare to say, you know, it's the first time. Yes, I sort of whispered at the first violin, and then they are terrified as well, because they think, you know, oh my God, what's going to happen? And I played the rehearsal, and it was terrible. <laughs> and, then, and then, oh, I collapsed, and then, uh, okay, finally I played. And I don't know what happened, I have no idea. <laughs> manage with having children and an international career? I really don't know. Basically, I don't manage, but somehow I manage. Yes, <laughs> and you manage to see something of your babies. Oh, yes, a lot. Yes, a lot, of yes. Of course, yes. yes. I yes. have been traveling with them, but now when it's going to start school, so it's a little bit difficult. But somehow I manage. You manage, yes. yes. In a very unorganized, disorganized, how do you say? Disorganized. disorganized. Yes. But you wouldn't be right. without either. You wouldn't be without the children. You wouldn't be no, without a career. No, it's very... Uh, I had a very hard time lately because we were in Japan, I was in Japan, and I had been 28 days, uh, 14 concerts, and I was with the children, and they were sick, and, yeah. and all these things. And there was 
rather difficult. Yeah. But somehow we survived and... Good. Mm. And just one or two little points, if I may bring you back to Tchaikovsky. You know <coughs> your octaves? Oh, yes. The tempo? Yeah, I Before. always... Well, I feel, you see, if I say to you now, I must, I must jolly well see that I go fast enough for Martha there, and then you say to me, don't go too fast. I have something with octaves. I you have, have a thing about it. Yes, all right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I mean, uh, so uh, if I hear it coming, you know, and I know they are not playing octaves, they're playing things, and I have to, then I think, oh, because I'm going to do, and then I, I get nervous, yeah. and then instead of, uh, because I am not afraid of speed, on the contrary. That's, no, on no, the contrary, no. that's my problem. That's your problem, yes. Speed is my problem, yes, instead yes, of being yes. the, you know. Yes. Yeah. You're a sort of sterling moss of fairness. <laughs> Argerich has recorded the work several times, but the recording that by general consent is considered to be her finest account on disc is her 1994 live performance of this work with Claudio Abado and the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra. Of this recording, Gramophone magazine noted, Argerich has never sounded on better terms with the piano, more virtuoso yet engagingly human, lyrical and insinuating, to a degree, her performance seems to be made of the tumultuous elements themselves, of fire and ice, rain and sunshine. The Russians may claim this concerto for themselves, but even they will surely listen in disbelief, awed and, dare one say it, a trifle piqued. Listen to Argerich's Allegro Conspirato as the concerto gets underway, where her darting crescendos and diminuendos make the triplet rhythm speak with the rarest vitality and caprice. Her nervous reaching out towards further pianistic phrase in the heart-easing second subject is pure argerich, and so are the octave storms in both the first and third movements that will have everyone, particularly her partners, tightening their seat belts. The cadenza is spun off with a hypnotic brilliance, the central prestissimo from the Andantino becomes a true scherzo of fireflies, and the finale seems to dance off the page, a far cry from more emphatic Ukrainian point-making and brutality. Here now is the first movement, Allegro non troppo e molto maestoso, Allegro con spirito, from Tchaikovsky's Piano Concerto No. 1 in B-flat minor, Opus 23. Listening to Argerich's playing here, it comes as no wonder that Stephen Kovacevich once stated, If Mercury could play the piano, Marta is what he would sound like. <laughs> Thank you. 
I didn't want to be a pianist, Argerich stated in a 1978 interview with Dean Elder. I still don't really want to be, but it is the only thing that I can do, more or less. I wanted to be a doctor. I love very much to play the piano, but I don't like to be a pianist. I don't like the profession itself, the traveling and way of life. All this has got nothing to do with playing or with music, absolutely nothing. This is what I do not enjoy about being a concert pianist. You never know when you are very young, when you are studying, what this profession is all about. No one tells you, and the people outside the profession don't have a clue. They think it's marvelous. In an interview with Gramophone Magazine's Jeremy Nicholas, Argerich added, One doesn't choose to be a performer. One doesn't choose one's character. I think one's character is formed early, and then you happen to be a performer later. It's not your free choice. You don't know what's going to happen psychologically and emotionally. Maybe you want to learn and move closer to music, and yes, to what you love, but that doesn't mean that you enjoy the performing. I always want to go to the cinema, not to my concert. I never think, I am about to play the Liszt Sonata, it's terrific, I play it wonderfully and I can't wait to share it with the public. Never. Audiences are not important for me now and they never were. I have reached a stage now where I am even more terrified of house concerts where the public is very near. If I have to play when they are close, then I am quite afraid. It happened to me, well, I was unwell and I was in California, but I decided to play forehands with a friend for his father's birthday. We prepared and I arrived there and there were crowds of people there for the birthday party. I was terrified. I went upstairs and slept for two hours and then I came back down. There were four people left, and I said, Now I can play. Okay, I hadn't been playing, I'd been ill, but I was terrified. I remember when I was nine, I was playing the D minor concerto of Mozart, and I went to the bathroom and I knelt down and I said, If I make a mistake, I will die. To myself I said this, and I was nine. This is not the problem of the audience exactly. I don't quite know what my problem with performing in public is. As Argerich's career developed, she began missing concerts quite often and deliberately as a result of her stage fright. Sometimes I would be in a terrible panic before a concert, she remembers. I'd imagine the worst things. I'd imagine a full hall. It's terrible. Her knees would tremble so forcibly, she says, that her feet would inadvertently bang on the floor. She described her first cancellation at age 17 in Florence, when she was not unwell, but simply did not want to play. So, she sent a telegram to the concert organizers, saying that she had hurt her finger, and then took a knife and cut her finger, so it would be true. She cut herself so deeply, however, that the wound prevented her from playing another concert the following week as well. In 1981, Argerich announced that she was giving up solo recitals entirely, which only added to the mystique which was beginning to surround her. Her persistent stage fright and the loneliness she experienced on stage, especially during solo recitals, was something that haunted her from the beginning of her career and she no longer wished to subject herself to such an ordeal. She elaborated on her feelings in a 1992 interview with Alberto Portugueche. This came from the fact that as a child I never went to school, she said. No one understood how much I suffered, having to practice for hours, always being on my own, 
not able to share with other children of my own age. On the stage, I had that strange feeling of being separated, stranded. For me, the audience is not company. It is a mass of people, no matter how friendly and enthusiastic. I have a great need for company when I am on the platform, and making music with other people, playing concertos and performing chamber music, gives me that feeling of company. In this way, I don't feel the solitude. Music for two pianos and piano forehands has proven one way in which Argerich has been able to partner with other artists and as a way for her to help combat her loneliness on stage. Over the years, she has worked with several long-standing partners, especially Nelson Freire, Alexander Rabinovich, Nicholas Economou, and more recently her compatriot, Daniel Barenboim. She has also performed and recorded with pianists such as Evgeny Kissin, Emmanuel Ax, Yefim Bromfman, Lilia Zilberstein, Mikhail Pletnev, and Lang Lang. But these performers are only occasional partners and seem to be partners out of curiosity rather than conviction, noted Bella Hartmann. Freire remains something of a soulmate to Argerich, a person whose opinion she trusts both musically and in personal matters. A few years ago, she even purchased a small pied-à-terre adjoining Freire's apartment in Paris so that they could play the piano together on a regular basis. Their musical partnership stretches back to the 1970s, and together they covered the war horses of the repertoire, culminating in a magnificent recording for Deutsche Grammophon that comprised Rachmaninoff's second suite, Ravel's La Valse, and the Paganini variations of Lutislavsky. Of Freire, Argerich has said, Nelson has the greatest facility that I have ever seen. He can sight-read like I've never seen in my life except for Gulda. Nelson is always looking for new things to play or read. He is one who enjoys playing the piano, like Kisaking, not like me. I have a conflict. Here now is the Tarantella from the second suite for two pianos, Opus 17, by Sergei Rachmaninoff, as performed by Marta Argerich and Nelson Freire, in this 1982 recording.
Richard Dyer noted that the burden of being Marta Argerich does not rest lightly on her. High, unrealistic expectations surround her every time she appears, which is probably one reason she cancels so often. Can you imagine what it must mean to play if you are Marta Argerich? noted violinist Evry Gitlis. People make a prima donna of her, one who cancels concerts as they set about Kalas and Michelangeli. She lives life at her own rhythms. It's not she who is out of step. It is the world which wants things to happen at a crazy pace, completely opposite to the rhythm of normal life and music. And if she is perceived as not of this world, so much the better. And, my God, make sure she remains so. No cliché applies to her. On stage, she is pianistic lightning, which is not to everybody's taste. Someone who plays so well awakens irrational fears. I've always been familiar with the state my mother is in, just before going on stage, noted Stephanie Argerich in Bloody Daughter. Sometimes I was so afraid when I was listening to her playing that I was totally on edge in my seat, pressing my fingers, holding my breath, and just praying for it to be over. At the end of the concert, I was exhausted, whereas she looked ten years younger. As one former manager has observed, with all her caprices and cancellations, Argerich has done everything she could to destroy her career, and totally failed in the attempt. Misha Maisky, a close friend and frequent partner to Argerich on stage, has said of her, She's among the very greatest living musicians yet her true potential remains untapped. For me, she operates at, say, 25 to 30% of her capacity, yet I admire her for it. She is not ambitious, doesn't care about fame and fortune, loathes the very notion of stardom. All she wants is to be allowed to lead her life as she wants, to do things in her own time and not be pressured. When she cancels, it's for her own perversely professional reasons. She will never allow herself to go on stage if she feels that she will play below her best form. In 1990, Argerich was diagnosed with malignant melanoma. It was a particularly difficult time for her. One year before, my mother had died of cancer, she said. Then, the same day that I was diagnosed, my best friend died from another type of cancer. She was 49. It was like a nightmare. Following treatment, Argerich's cancer went into remission, but resurfaced in 1995, eventually metastasizing into her lungs and lymph nodes. I was afraid of my own body, she said of the trauma she faced. I was afraid of myself for the first time, afraid to be me, she noted in an interview with Anthony Tomasini in the New York Times. Later I was able to think, Okay, Martita. Do you want to live or do you want to die? Which do you want? And so it was, she told Diego Fisherman in an interview. Through friends, Argerich learned of a surgical oncologist, Dr. Donald Morton, the medical director of the John Wayne Cancer Institute in California, who had developed an experimental vaccine that could be used to fight melanoma by stimulating the body's immune system. In addition to taking the experimental vaccine, Argerich had to undergo surgery to remove cancerous tissue from her lungs. This was March 1997, Argerich said in an interview. Just before the surgery, I felt, this is dangerous. You see, to play the piano, you use these muscles, 
below the arm, on your side and back. In an interview with Anthony Tomasini, Dr. Morton admitted that he had not realized until then how important those muscles were to a pianist. Thank God we were able to accomplish the procedure without doing damage to the muscles. The recovery was grueling for her, but the same characteristics that make her a world-class pianist also make her a survivor. She is a very brave lady. The use of the experimental vaccine and surgery were successful, and Argerich's cancer went into remission. In a 1999 interview with Diego Fisherman, she noted, For now I am well. I only have to be very careful about stress, from all points of view, emotional and psychological. What happens is that I do too much. The last two years I have been like a crazy person. Furthermore, I had a great deal of emotional stress, above all with my sentimental life, which is a disaster. In that sense, I am doing very badly. My sentimental life is a desert. What happens is that, in general, I don't feel settled in any respect. It's as if I were always constructing myself. But I think that this is life. Until we die, we are always constructing ourselves. I know it's a very difficult question, but can you say with words, what do you feel in those moments that you feel there is magic? That connectedness to that, you know, music. Silence. It is something that has to do with silence, although it could seem strange because it is playing music, it's playing. But it has something to do with silence.
And that was the Sinfonia from the second partita in C minor, BWV 826 by Johann Sebastian Bach, as played by Marta Argerich in that 1980 recording. On March 25, 2000, in gratitude for the work done at the John Wayne Cancer Institute by Dr. Morton and his team, Argerich performed in a now legendary concert at Carnegie Hall to benefit the Institute. The concert was significant, since for the first time in nearly two decades, she performed solo repertoire in a major American concert venue. Tickets for the landmark event sold out in a flash. According to the critic Philip Anson, there was a palpable sense of electricity in the auditorium that evening, as the likes of Isaac Stern, Maurizio Pollini, and other world-class musicians joined concertgoers to witness Argerich's performance. Argerich's solo repertoire that evening included the second Bach partita, of which we just heard the Sinfonia, some Chopin, and then a rendition of Prokofiev's knuckle-busting Sonata No. 7 in B-flat major that critic Donald Manildi characterized as shattering, reckless, accurate, something that had to be heard to be believed. Shirley Fleming, in her review of the Concert for American Record Guide, wrote, Prokofiev is the composer with whom Argerich is probably most closely associated, and his Sonata No. 7 brought into focus the qualities that ignite her playing so vividly. The first movement was an exhibition of ferocity and whiplash intensity. The melodic warmth of the slow movement was given great tenderness, while the pulverizing finale was simply volcanic, based on pile-driving left-hand hammers in the bass that must have shaken the very foundations of the stage. One's stomach was clenched when she finished. Here now is the Precipitato from Prokofiev's Piano Sonata No. 7 in B-flat major, Opus 83, from that legendary evening at Carnegie Hall, March 25, 2000, as recorded by a member of the audience seated in the balcony. The sound of this extract is of course not great, but I wanted to include it in this program not only because of its historical significance, but because of the almost superhuman speed and power of Argerich's playing. For those of you who are interested, do go and watch the video of this performance on YouTube. So, hold on to your seats.
Following Argerich's performance of the Prokofiev Sonata, the audience howled and stamped, demanding six curtain calls before intermission alone. In the second half, Argerich played the Schumann Piano Quintet in E-flat major with the Juilliard Quartet and a two-piano transcription of Ravel's La Valse with Nelson Freire. In response to near-endless applause and 16 curtain calls, Argerich and Freire added two encores for four hands, and as Anson reported, the countless bows only ended when the house lights were turned off and technicians started dismantling the pianos. It is hard to think of another legendary classical music artist whose appearances are more enthusiastically or more nervously anticipated than those of Argerich. In recent years, she has continued to perform a select handful of concertos, most notably Schumann, the Liszt First, the First, Second and Third Beethoven Concertos, the Ravel and the Prokofiev Third, with trusted partners such as Charles de Troyes, Ricardo Chailly, Daniel Barenboim and until his death in 2014, Claudio Abado. Last year, at the age of 75, Argerich's performance of Liszt's first piano concerto, conducted by Daniel Barenboim at the BBC Proms, elicited the following review by Andrew Clements in The Guardian, and I quote, It was an unforgettable performance. Argerich celebrated her 75th birthday in June of this year, but that news doesn't seem to have reached her fingers. Her playing is still as dazzling, as frighteningly precise as it has always been her ability to spin gossamer threads of melody as matchless as ever. This was unmistakably and unashamedly list in the grand manner, a bit old-fashioned and sometimes even a bit vulgar at times, but in this of all concertos, with Barenboim and the orchestra following each twist and turn, every little quickening and moment of expressive reflection, it seemed entirely appropriate. She also continues to perform a great deal of chamber music, again mostly with a circle of close friends and long-time collaborators that include Gidon Kremer, Misha Maisky, Daniel Barenboim and Lilia Zilberstein, especially as part of the Progetto Marta Argerich, now in its 14th year, which takes place each summer during the festival at Lugano in the Italian-speaking district of Switzerland and at the Argerich Music Festival in Beppu, Japan, which was founded in her honour in 1996. Argerich remains devoted to young musicians, whom she promotes, often supports financially with her own funds, and even houses for extended periods of time at her home in Brussels in the company of two cats, Ginger and Tango. In her household, creative mayhem reigns supreme, as mostly pianists from across the world, Hungarians, Russians, Japanese, Cubans, Argentines, hone their skills and then gather for meals amid a cacophony of conversation in at least a half dozen languages that Argerich handles with fluency. In 2004, when Olivier Bellamy asked Argerich in an interview for Le Monde de la Musique when she will be recording a solo CD again, Argerich responded as follows. Everybody asks me this question, but I am not interested. If I would play solo in concerts, it would be a natural to record, but since I don't give recitals anymore, it would be totally artificial. I make a comfortable living. I have no need to do anything more. 
I am enthusiastic about others and that makes me happy. I have played a lot in my life and I never quite liked it. I do not have much time left anymore to do all of the things that I'd like to do and playing solo is not one of my priorities. I am not so young anymore and I have earned the right to enjoy myself. The revelation in Stephanie Argerich's film Bloody Daughter, however intimate and personal the documentary may be, is that there is no revelation, notes Marx Fed in the Los Angeles Times. Argerich is a pianist who remains unknowable, evasive, filled with contradictions. In Bloody Daughter, Argerich confesses to not knowing who she is at the age of 70. She's a performer who dislikes performing, a pianist who finds the piano anti-musical, an artist of the highest caliber who does not even consider herself to be one. An artist is someone who discovers things, has revelations, is dedicated. Being an artist is something very big. I don't consider myself to be an artist, she once noted. In trying to summarize Argerich and attempting to understand her genius, it soon becomes obvious that we cannot really explain her mystery, magic and allure, those very elements that keep us coming back, that keep us listening, entranced and enthralled at her artistry. Bernard Holland, writing in the New York Times, captured it wonderfully when he wrote, We never know quite where she will lead us. She is an artist of becoming. Her phrases are charged with unstable energy, driven toward resolution and relief. We fly along behind her, touched and moved. Well, that brings us to the end of this special two-part program dedicated to the life and artistry of Marta Argerich. I trust that you've enjoyed listening and discovering with me this wonderful artist, and I look forward to sharing with you more insights from other great interpreters from the world of classical music very soon. Before I sign off, a reminder that you can listen again to this program or to any of my previous programs on my website, On and Off the Record, available at www.onandofftherecord.com. That's www on and off the record.com. You can also download a podcast of this program or subscribe to my podcast feed on iTunes. Should you have any feedback, comments or queries about this program, please do not hesitate to contact me by leaving a comment on my website, by writing a review on iTunes or by sending me a message via Twitter, the On and Off the Record Facebook page or via email adrian at onandofftherecord.com. That's A-D-R-I-A-A-N at onandofftherecord.com. I would greatly value your feedback and comments, your thoughts, or particular aspects of Argerich's artistry that you'd like to share with me and with the other On and Off the Record listeners. The last extract that I'd like to play to you is the sonata in D minor, Kirkpatrick number 141, Longo 422, by Domenico Scarlatti as performed by Argerich live on October 1st, 1980 in Philharmonic Hall, Warsaw. From me, Adrian Fuchs, till the next program, keep well. <laughs>